0: We built a platform for entrepreneurs to come and build with us first. So we had an entrepreneurs in residence program from the very beginning. And we lovingly call it humans in the wild because we think that founders who are really thinking about building their next company and they identify with this, you're out in the wild.
1: You are listening to the Shot Entrepreneur. a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas. Venture capital investors and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Shot Entrepreneur. My guest today is Heather Harnett. She's the CEO and general partner at Human Ventures, a New York City-based venture capital firm. Let's talk to her to find out what kind of companies she invests in. She also runs a startup studio. What does that entail? What kind of entrepreneurs she likes to support and how she chooses them? Heather, welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation.
1: Yes, me too. Tell us about yourself, starting with how did you enter the venture capital world?
0: Yeah, sure. Everyone has a windy path into venture. One thing we can understand is that there's no definitive path that leads you there. And that's why it's such a fun industry and a mix of folks. I came from a long line of entrepreneurs. So, right after graduating college in the early 2000s, I was asked by my family not what job was I going to get, but rather what value was I going to create in the world. And as an early 20 something, this deep sense of responsibility led me to start my career actually in philanthropy. I was working alongside some of the largest family offices in the world who were thinking about big things and were aiming to make the largest impact they could. That really shaped the way that I saw the world. Eventually, I started to see a trend that the next generation of philanthropists were actually, in my mind, entrepreneurs. They were building, they were aiming to build for profit companies that were driving big change. It didn't have to be a nonprofit to do so. And so that's when I found myself at an impact investment fund called City Light Capital in New York City. And that's really where I fell in love with early venture capital. Coming from a family of entrepreneurs, there are two things that I think I've always been good at from a very early age, and it's identifying trends ahead of the market and then identifying the people who are going to usher in those trends. What other industry profession allows me to invest in people and provide them with resources before the world sees? their potential. I really think only venture can do that. So eventually I met my co-founder, Joe Marchese. He is a successful serial entrepreneur himself. And we looked at founders in a very similar way. That's when we started Human Ventures together.
1: So you were at City Lights Capital in 2013, 14, around that time. And that's where you kind of laid the foundation for your career in venture capital. But you eventually came back and started Human Ventures in 2015. Like you said, Venture capital is such a unique industry where we get to work with brilliant entrepreneurs who see the world differently. And we tend to be the first set of believers, the early believers in the idea and the founding team. So it's a privilege and an honor to have that opportunity. How is human ventures different from other venture capital firms? What do you look for in entrepreneurs? How do you make decisions that are different from other VC firms?
0: Yeah, Human Ventures is, we think, the only fund that really identifies what we call futurists, and we back them until the market sees their value. What I mean by that is I think that founders are generally living in a world that's 10 years ahead of their time, and they feel uncomfortable because the world is not in the state that they feel it should be. We look for those types of founders. They have a deep sense of understanding of the problem they're trying to solve, and they will not rest until they feel that they have changed the minds of customers and consumers and brought them into their world. And so when we identify founders early, we've created an environment for them to thrive and to meet peers like them and to have resources to run fast. And we stick with them until they've got the world convinced of their vision. That's why our pre-seed investments have catalyzed billion plus dollar companies in a relatively short amount of time, because you have to be able to pick the right people who are riding that wave and that trend.
1: This is definitely a different take on venture capital. And I also notice that you have this principle of having an attitude of gratitude. You have a early part of your career. You spend time in the nonprofit world. And I'm curious to understand how you got informed about this as an important piece of the puzzle when you started building human ventures. Why is this attitude of gratitude important?
0: Well, we originally said one of our values is going to be happiness because look, we're all very privileged to be in the position that we are to be starting companies, to be in a world where we can actually have command of our time. We said we truly want to be grateful because it's hard to be unhappy if you are grateful for what you have. So first and foremost, I want to work with people who have gratitude for the situation that they're in. And it's really done well for me to surround myself with people who know how to be grateful. There's a certain amount of self-awareness that it takes to be grateful. That is one of our values at Human, and I think that it does set us apart, both from a culture perspective and also who we look for in founders. But when you look at founders, our job is to pick stock in people, pick stock in the team that is going to be able to execute. And I think the founders of the future look very different from the founders of the past. The world looks very different, so they should be. We're looking for founders who have that awareness and capacity to understand what's coming around the bend. Our socioeconomic world looks different. Our climate is changing. How consumers are consuming is changing. So you have to be someone who is very well aware of how to navigate those times. And nobody can be clairvoyant. They can't see the future. But you can be resilient and you can be a type of person who understands how to navigate challenges when inevitable, tumultuous times are going to be thrown your way.
1: Can you give an example of a company that represents that value? How did you identify that in the early conversations?
0: Yeah, one company that comes to mind is Tiny Organics. Tiny Organics is an organic baby food brand. They've been phenomenal in tapping into what the consumer demand has been for reliable, healthy, organic food. And the founders, when they were starting, Sophia and Betsy, they really knew that in five years, most customers of their segment weren't going to want plastic in their baby's food. So they really pushed their co-manufacturers from the very beginning to redesign their process to be able to have less plastic and more biodegradable containers. And they were thinking about where the mother and father who were purchasing their product were going to be in five or ten years. And I think that pushes the industry. It pushes the mentality ever since there has been a lot that has come out about the toxins in plastic and everything for children's food. So just as a concrete example of a founder who really knows what they want and knows what is right. And then even if it takes a little bit more time in the beginning to set things up right, it in the long run, is going to be a more sustainable business.
1: There is a lot of wastage and use of plastic, which is not necessary. It's a tiny organics is changing that game and using sustainable solutions, to make it healthy for children to consume good food. How did you engage with them in the first couple of meetings? What did you ask them? What got you excited?
0: Well, the fun part about Human Ventures is we built the hard part first. We built a platform for entrepreneurs to come and build with us first. We had an entrepreneurs in residence program from the very beginning. We lovingly call it humans in the wild because we think that founders who are really thinking about building their next company and they identify with this, you're out in the wild. So we allowed them to come in and we started iterating on what was the big problem that they wanted to solve. And it was really looking at the customer segmentation of the future parent and specifically the future mother. Where are they buying? What do they want for their children? How is it accessible at a price point that's accessible for all and not just kind of the coastal elites? And we started looking at where there were white spaces. You could see it from the beginning that the founders were determined to figure that out. There wasn't a solution in the frozen section in any grocery store that delivered that organic food. And so they started the direct consumer model. It's been unbelievable to see them weather the COVID storm and actually direct a consumer subscription for reliable organic food, it turns out, was really needed during the recession, the human recession, I call it, (laughs) you know, the pandemic.
1: (laughs) So you built a platform so that you can attract entrepreneurs to come to you and the platform will support them, incubate businesses and give them a practical way of launching the business. Yep. At what stage do you prefer the entrepreneur to come to meet you?
0: We have a venture studio where we build from scratch. We have now this incubator program called Humans in the Wild. For nomenclature, we'll call it a pre-seed incubator. So companies that haven't taken institutional capital yet, but they're really early. And then we also have a traditional venture fund. So we will see companies and invest in pre-seed, seed, and series A as well through the fund. So we believe that that ecosystem really is the best opportunity to support founders from zero to escape velocity. As we see the landscape of venture capital, every day there are new billion-dollar seed funds (laughs) that are popping up. And so when capital is a commodity, how are you differentiating yourself? Really supplying value add and a network for the founders of other founders who are building alongside them is really integral. And why our money is more than just money. It's the whole network they're getting behind the check that we give them.
1: So you get in way earlier in this process. You're not looking for a slide deck pitch and a story. In fact, you want the entrepreneurs to come to you pretty raw and not even with a fully baked idea. Then you help them shape that idea. What do you look for? I'm sure that a lot of entrepreneurs want to get into the program, but how do you choose them?
0: It's a good question. We look for people who have built something in the past, it doesn't have to be a tech company that's exited, right? I think that's a lot of the pattern recognition that people will continuously fund. It has to be somebody who has a strong network mindset, who sees the future in a unique way and will not let up until the rest of the world understands where that is. They have a deep understanding of the problem they're trying to solve, strong characteristic that we look for they have the ability to bring people along. So you have people who are willing to jump on board with you even before you have funding. You are that charismatic in the idea that you have and you're that clear in how you're articulating your vision. And then there's also this characteristic that is a little bit more intangible and it's hard to measure. I call it the rapid iterator. Somebody who has the discipline and the drive to continuously iterate on what they're seeing and they gain conviction in their idea through that rapid iteration and how the markets respond to what they're building. so Those are the areas that we look for. And we have ways to identify it. We track founders from the beginning days of when they're starting to build. And we see how these play out and try to add value early, even before we put money into a company. And then when those companies ready to raise capital, we're there by their side.
1: So this Humans in the Wild program is a 100-day program. Yes. What happens in those 100 days? What do entrepreneurs get out of it?
0: There are 13 weeks that take the founders through the journey. Because we have a startup studio, we've seen a process that emerges of gaining conviction in the need and then interviewing customers, understanding how to build your first product, testing that, iterating on it. There is a week of self-discovery as well, which is working with a founder coach in residence and you can learn more about yourself so you know how to hire your first teammates. There's a peer group. So you're reviewing milestones with a peer group. And that's really the biggest epiphany that we came to, which is founders will learn from other founders. And so creating a network of really strong and talented founders, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? It creates a very valuable network. There are alumni from that program now. We've had four different cohorts who have gone through that program. And then it's an equity-free program. So it really is a feeder. And we have invested in about 10 companies that came out of those programs. We just want to continue to build that up. We think adding value very early is extremely important for the ecosystem and adding more than just capital.
1: An equity-free program is very rare to find, especially one that is (laughs) well-structured. Very lucky for the entrepreneurs who are able to take advantage of these resources. And you invested in 10 of these companies. You also invest in companies through your venture fund directly as well outside this program, right? Roughly how many companies do you invest in a year?
0: We have now 53 portfolio companies over the last six years, and we were launching another fund. And I imagine we'll have about another, about 40 companies in that fund as well. So we deployed this fund a little bit faster than we were expecting.
1: That's a very, pretty fast pace. Indeed. I like asking this question where is the market today and where is it going? There's a frenetic pace where companies are doing very well on one side and then there are so many startups that struggle to raise capital. So I'm still trying to figure out and make sense out of the trends in the market. What is your view? And from the entrepreneur's perspective, what can they do to prepare in this current market?
0: Oh, this is a great question. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well as you are an emerging fund manager yourself. I'm very excited about the number of smaller funds that are popping up because it's just a market dynamic. I think fund managers who are starting their own funds have more of an entrepreneurial perspective, they are filling a need that might not be filled by the larger funds. When you're seeing these large big name funds raise bigger and bigger funds, it gives opportunities for new entrants to come in and prove why they can add more value at the earlier stages of building for founders. So it's a good thing that more capital is coming into the market. I do think that the reason why we love the earliest stages is because we have an engine that builds conviction early, right, before the market. If you can identify trends early, you can gain conviction in the people who are trying to bring that to come to fruition before the market. Because once the company starts working and once the spreadsheets and once the metrics are there, there's a ton of capital that flows in. So who are those people who have these predictive engines that can gain conviction ahead of the market? That's where I think the biggest opportunity is.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting trend indeed and excited to see where we will go into the future. One thing is clear to me that big brands and large firms have a different game and it is far removed from the, the ground realities of the seed stage, pre-seed stage where new VC firms operate. Entrepreneurs choose partners and they don't choose brands. when They bring new investors on board and those personal connections with the partner directly matters a lot, especially at the early stages. And that's proving Mm -hmm. to be more and more true. Therefore, there are a lot more VC firms out in the market because the entrepreneurs choose those firms. Once they choose, that becomes the lifeblood of the venture capital business. And those VCs are able to raise capital and build a long-term business in venture capital. So I see that trend becoming more and more solid. And in the future, I expect to see many, many more VC firms.
0: Yeah, I agree. I also encourage founders to really be mindful of who they choose, what firms they choose to come into their earliest rounds. It's very intoxicating if some of the big name firms want to come in early. But you have to say, how big is their fund? Are you one of 200 portfolio companies? Are you one of a few that you're going to have much more attention put on you and thoughtful partnership? And if that's the case, then who are you letting into your company? Who are you making money for? And you have that choice. A lot of founders don't feel like they do have the choice, but if the company is really working and you resonate with a partner, then you want to take capital from somebody who understands your vision.
1: Yeah, you made a very interesting comment. Who are you going to generate returns for? That matters a lot. In the very early stages, especially entrepreneurs feel like they don't have choice, but they are working very hard. And when they are successful, the returns will be outstanding and they will care about who gets those returns. It should be someone that they care about, and it should be someone whose values align with the founders. Founders often don't really reflect on this until much later in the game, but it's important for them to start thinking about it. What's your advice to founders on how much they should raise, especially at the early stages where you invest? What is the right amount of capital to invest, and how should they plan for it? (laughs)
0: Well, I think they should raise the amount of money that they need to get to that next milestone. Our industry, we have a strong nomenclature and there are trends and everyone ends up following those trends very quickly. I don't like the blanket kind of valuations that are put on these different stages. It really doesn't matter what the term is anymore of the different stages of funding. You have to look at the metrics and you have to have a lot of discipline in the beginning to say, are you still at that pre-seed stage? Do you really have a product yet? And and when you start to see that you have some semblance of product market fit, then you need to know how much money you need to take to be able to get to that next level. What I think is dangerous is when some firms can mark companies up far past what they know that the company is going to be valued at. And then the founders are going to have a really tough time backing that valuation for subsequent rounds unless they hit that. Founders have to really think about being measured in the beginning and not take on too much capital at too high of a valuation before they understand if they have a product that's working.
1: Can you give an example, like one of the recent transactions, how much did they raise and how did you help them plan for the future?
0: One company that we didn't start the company from scratch, but I've known the founder since the beginning is Tia Health. Tia started as a chat bot for women's healthcare issues and really around asking for advice around birth control. Tia means aunt. Carolyn and Felicity, the founders, had this idea of, can you create more accessible healthcare through a chatbot? What they saw was this overwhelming demand for a need around women's healthcare that just wasn't being fulfilled by traditional primary care. They started to react to that, and they launched an in-person clinic to be able to be almost the one medical for all women's healthcare needs. Fast forward four years, and they really responded to that in such a significant way that they'll now have 15 clinics this year, and they raised $100 million last month to be able to size up all of their clinics across the US. But what I'll say is that they found the torque around their product market fit, where they might have thought that they were addressing a need in one way, but the end goal was still there to create healthcare for women in a different way, investing in the whole woman. But there are many different products and services that can get you there. They had to listen to that and keep launching and keep understanding what their customer was actually asking for.
1: What an amazing journey for the founders. They're building a much needed solution in the world. The aunt is usually the person that girls reach out to for help when yeah. they have a question. It's a fitting name. And I always yeah. complain that girls have aunts to reach out to, boys have no one. And boys usually <laughs> turn to their their friends who are equally clueless about the same age. It's like blind leading the blind. Maybe we need a solution for boys as well, eventually. That's there's <laughs> an underserved market right there.
0: Yeah, I think specialized healthcare in general has been under-researched and underserved. Tia's a good example of a founder who is pushing the envelope. You thought that healthcare was solving a problem for everyone. And then you start seeing that there are very special needs. We have another company called Spora Health, which is primary care for people of color. Culturally relevant healthcare, where there's an entire subset of the population who don't feel comfortable going to general practitioner. And so they never have. How can you create a brand and the trust with a consumer that otherwise has not been exposed to healthcare?
1: Yeah, that's true. Cultural habits of people, their food habits, how they run their lifestyle, all of those things change from one culture to another. And if the regular general practitioner is not well versed in the lifestyle of that specific patient, they may lose a lot of valuable information. Mm -hmm. What's acceptable in one culture is not acceptable in the other culture. I want to ask you a difficult question. You meet a lot of startups and you say no very often. What are some of your most common reasons to say no?
0: One common reason to say no is the size of the market. A lot of founders don't realize the math behind venture capital and the calculus of the the venture investor saying that the common trope and founders get very frustrated when they hear that the market's not big enough for this type of company. And sometimes that's proven wrong because you don't understand how big the market can be and the market grows with that company. But I think it's pretty obvious when you see a founder who sees the potential for the market to be huge and where that can really go. Starting from square one, they're able to say, what's the first step in that direction? And then what's the vision for the full company? To be able to articulate, it's never going to end up the way that you think it is. Travis Kalnick and Garrett Camp didn't know what Uber was going to end up doing. Nobody can do that. But you can envision a world where you have a big vision and your product or service can go into that. So the first thing is growth mindset of the founder and making sure that the industry is big enough where you can see a world in which the world changes to be able to make that product or service even bigger. Sometimes we say no because of valuation. We feel that the founder thinks that the company is worth a certain amount and they're just not there yet. That's a big one for us. We have to be very disciplined with valuation. Some of these big funds don't have to be because they're preserving their optionality. But with a smaller fund or when you're investing early, it means a lot because that's where you have the opportunity to get in. And that's where we play. Those are two big reasons why we would say no.
1: Yeah. When I invested in CDs A, CDs B, The seed investors did the work to make sure the market size was big enough and the founders were targeting a very large market and there's an opportunity to build a very big firm. There were still risks, but when I started investing in pre-seed and seed stage, now I started meeting lots of entrepreneurs who probably didn't understand the venture capital style of business, the need for rapid growth and the need to target a very large market. Now I meet a lot of entrepreneurs. One of my first questions is to find out is there a large market here or is this a small niche market? And mm-hmm. that is an important question, especially at the pre-seed and seed stage. Let's yeah. so at later stages because those entrepreneurs are already filtered out. This is incredibly valuable. You're giving specific examples from real-life experiences, examples of startups that you invested in, and including situations and why you say no. This is very kind of you to share authentic stories. I want to switch to the next part of our conversation and ask you about a nonprofit organization or a community activity that you are passionate about. Which one?
0: I spent a long time working closely with an organization called the David Lynch Foundation. They provide meditation and alternative modalities to medication for at risk populations. They were one of the first organizations to really start talking about traumatic stress and the indicators of mental health, the implications of negative impact on mental health and how meditation can help counteract that. We worked with inner city schools and they still do with incarcerated individuals, women and girls who have suffered from domestic violence. I really believe in the work that the David Lynch Foundation is doing to relieve that traumatic stress
1: Well, this is incredibly exciting. I'm looking forward to sharing your nuggets of wisdom with the world. Human Ventures is not only a venture capital firm, you're building a business creation platform. So I look forward to collaborating with you and hopefully investing in startups together.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on.